Okay, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this, anoint- why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so she may, so that she may keep to, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is, the, this is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are standing in awe of you this morning. God, I thank you for the reminder from Pastor David that though we are prone to wander you have redeemed us and no one can snatch us out of your hand nothing can come can separate us the bible tells us from the love of god which is in christ jesus and so lord we humble ourselves before your word this morning and ask that you would just search our hearts that you would know us fully and that we would be known in the light of your word that we would submit to it and that we would give attention to it lord that we would not Um, be here as spectators to be entertained but lord we would be here to uh, be enlightened and drawn closer to the heart of the father this morning lord i pray for myself i pray that you would enable me to do what no man can do and that is to carry the words of god without help from the holy spirit and so I, i ask that i would have that help this morning i pray that you would make my words and my thoughts clear and that uh, I would be true to the intent of your word, and that I would not add my own meaning or uh, my own thoughts, but I would uh, give it to the people as it was given uh, by your apostles, by your prophets, Lord, and that I would be true to that. Lord, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the gathering of the saints and for your presence here gathered with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, It's probably no surprise to you that today is Palm Sunday, and that's why we kind of gravitated to this text. But I'm going to commit 
just a little bit of a pastoral faux pas this morning, and I'm going to back up a little bit, just like we did in the text. And I want to look at the historical context of the, of the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I want to take a look particularly at the reactions of people to Jesus. I want to see how the people that Jesus was interacting with in these last few days before his crucifixion and resurrection, how did they react to him? And I want to see if there are parallels, if we can find parallels to the way that people respond to him even today. So shortly before the or shortly after rather the resurrection of Lazarus who'd been dead for 4 days, you can read that story in John chapter 11, shortly after that He'd been dead four days. Jesus raised him. And a lot of attention came Jesus' way because of this miracle. There was negative attention. There was positive attention. The common people saw this miracle. They were amazed, as you would be, and they believed in Jesus. The leaders of the Jews, however, were not so amazed. They, in fact, the Bible tells us in the end of John chapter 11, that they were in a panic And they were thinking that because of the magnitude of this miracle, that now everybody was going to follow Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you command dead people to come to life, you immediately have a lot of credibility. And that's what Jesus did. And so the fear among the Jewish leaders was that now the Bible said the whole world, is that that this was what they were thinking, was going to follow him. Oh, that that were true. And because of that, they felt like that they were done. They said, the Romans are going to come. They're going to take away our nation. They're going to take away our place. But in the middle of this panic, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at this time, he rebuked them. He rebuked the other leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, the elders. And this is what he said. He said, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But John tells us that Caiaphas, in saying this, was saying much more than he realized he was saying. We're told that God sovereignly commandeered both his role as the high priest and commandeered his tongue as well. And this is how John puts it in John eleven fifty one. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. He was actually saying that Jesus would be our substitute and he had no idea what he was saying. And now all the things, all the pieces, all the parts of this puzzle are in place and the Jews begin to scheme to use the Romans to kill Jesus. But God was actually the one, the power behind the scenes that is orchestrating the death of Christ in order to bring about redemption from sin and death for everyone who would believe. Others in this play, in this drama, including Caiaphas, others in this drama were just pawns. They were pawns in a plan that the triune God had ordained from all eternity and that was we were right on the brink of seeing fulfilled. In just one week, What God had planned from all eternity was going to be fulfilled in Christ. 
And so here's Christ. He's fully and joyfully conspiring with the eternal decree of God to save humanity. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. Six days before his arrest, he is found at the home of Lazarus, of Mary, of Martha, his sisters. And they, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in Bethany. Now, Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's literally in the suburbs of Jerusalem right now before the Passover. And Jesus, we're told in the text that Landy read to us, is the guest of honor at a dinner party held to welcome him back into their home. How many of you know if Jesus raises your dead brother, he's welcome to come over for dinner anytime? That's the way that works. That's the rules. And the first thing we notice when we look at this text is that Martha served. Now, if you're familiar with other Gospels, this won't strike you as surprising. It's not the first time we've seen the hospitable side of Martha. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had visited their home before, and Martha was constantly running between the kitchen and the living room. She was making sure that everyone's glasses were full and and that everyone was generally comfortable. And if I may just add a little personal note, I love people like Martha. I love them. We have a lot of those kind of people in our church. And going to their homes is always a delight because of the hospitable spirit. And and hospitality is something that throughout the, the breadth of Scripture is celebrated. Elders in the church are are told that they are expected to be hospitable. Peter tells us that everyone in the church is to show hospitality without grumbling. And Hebrews has this weird cryptic passage of Scripture where it tells us that some people, while operating in hospitality, have even entertained angels through their hospitality and were completely unaware of that fact. Hospitality is a good thing, right? But Martha, in the middle of her gift and and operating in this, back in Luke 10, Martha is gently rebuked for her much serving. When when Mary chose to sit, Mary, her sister, chose to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words and enjoy his presence, Martha had what my mom used to call a conniption fit. Martha says, Jesus, will you please... Get Martha off her backside and get her in here to help me with the dishes. Get her to do something. And Jesus' response to Martha is awesome. This is what Jesus says to Martha. He says, but the Lord answered her, Luke ten forty one. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing, everybody say one thing. But one thing is necessary. Mary, not you, Martha. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. As good as hospitality is, and as much of a blessing it is to everyone else, to sit at Jesus' feet and and to, to just soak it all in, that's a good thing. That's the best thing. And Jesus said, hey, Martha, Mary chose right. I am not taking this away from her. It's good. Listen, don't misunderstand me. It's good. It's great. It's wonderful when we're found 
serving. In fact, it's a fact of the Christian life that when our lives are changed, truly changed, and we're saved by God, when we're, when we're being transformed because of the gospel, service is always going to be born out of love. Sign of true belief is always marked by service. That's the natural response. And Martha couldn't be accused by any of us who are reading these passages of being lazy or sloppy. But what she didn't understand was that there is more. Listen to me carefully, because there's some of you like Martha here today. Martha didn't understand that there was more to knowing Christ than just laboring to serve him diligently. There's a whole lot more to this thing than that. I love the way Paul put this as he's talking to the Athenians at the Areopagus in Athens. He says this in Acts 17. He says, listen to these words carefully. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. But pay careful attention to the next verse, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, I don't think that Martha was some soulless worker bee. That's not what I'm accusing her of. But she didn't seem to understand that we don't have to serve God out of this heavy weight of obligation. When we serve the Lord, we do it from love. We do it from joy because God does not need anything we can give. And if some of you will understand that, chains will fall off your life. God doesn't need anything that you can produce. And so what did Martha need? Martha needed To learn occasionally to be still, to meditate on the word, to enjoy, just simply enjoy the transforming power of grace. Uh, But we're not done. Where's the big brother here? Where's Lazarus? Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Now imagine, if you can, imagine Lazarus' devotion to Jesus after spending four days in a cold tomb and hearing his voice, Lazarus, come forth! Whoa! And all of a sudden, the man who was dead is now alive. And he comes hopping, bound head to toe, the Bible tells us, out of that grave. Jesus has to command people to unwrap this mummy that has come back to life. Can you imagine, after experiencing something like that, how devoted he must have been to Jesus? It would have been incredible. You could never talk him out of belief. And so because of this devotion, all he wanted to do was sit at the table and soak him up. He wanted to soak up the words of Christ, the smile of Christ, the tender compassion of Christ, even the authority of Christ. He wanted to just take it in and soak it up. He was way more like Mary than Martha. And he just wanted more. No matter how much of Jesus he had, he just wanted more. And who in this room could fault Lazarus for that? Not me. 
being raised to life. Now, if you understand the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that those of us who believe that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. So what Lazarus experienced physically, every single one of us who believe have experienced spiritually. After being raised to life, as we all have, that should prompt us to respond. See, grace motivates us to worship and to pray, but it also motivates us to proclaim and to think and to study and to give and to even serve in love and joy. That's what grace does. It it, it doesn't just have us sitting like a sponge. It has us doing and, and proclaiming and loving Actively, Lazarus's posture of reclining leads some scholars to believe that this wasn't just supper. Mary and Martha didn't just whip something up for Jesus. It was a banquet. It was a party. And some of us just want to be at the Christian party 24-7. We just want to, we just want to crank up the worship music and we want to listen to endless podcasts and read one more book. But those things should motivate us to action. When, when, we're, when we're being fed and when we're soaking things in and enjoying new revelation about Jesus and His power and His awesomeness and His grace, it should move us to action. Jesus did not call us to just learn more truth. He called us to advance because of the truth we're learning. Many of us, act at times like medieval monks. I don't know how much you know about the dark ages, but medieval monks, one of the craziest times in human history was the middle ages and wars and, and plagues and all thing, kind of things were happening. But the monks would lock themselves away in a monastery to contemplate deep spiritual truths while people starved and the world was on fire. They just thought about deep thoughts and the world is burning often right outside of our castle walls and i am here to tell you saints you were made for much more than this you were made for more than just soaking it all up this is what ephesians 2 says it says for we you and i are his workmanship for what purpose were we were we made what why are we his workmanship we were created in christ jesus for good works whoa why are you saved why are you a saint why are you a believer you have been made such so that you can proclaim and display his glory through good works so much so that it says these good works are what god prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them your, your good works are not just random acts of kindness, as the phrase was so popular a few years ago, but they are the design, the sovereign design of God that you should go out of a place like this, scatter throughout the city, and proclaim His glory. That's why we were created. See, what Martha may have done out of balance and in excess, Lazarus neglected. And, and the place where Lazarus wanted to live is where Martha should have visited frequently. So we got to ask ourselves, as we're sitting here, is there a middle way? Is there some way that we can bring all these things together? 
And here we go. In walks the sister. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now watch this. Martha served Lazarus, reclined and soaked, and Mary worshipped. Her love for Christ's person and being in his presence moved her to respond with an extravagant act of love. Why do I say extravagant? Because her act of love, her offering of love, costs her a year's wages. We learn that later in the text. It costs her a year's wages. Now imagine, I don't know what you make, but imagine taking everything that you're going to make in the year 2021 and, and using that money to purchase one thing, one jar of perfume, that's all you're going to buy. And that's what some point in Martha's li- or Mary's life, that's what somebody had done. They'd taken an entire year's wages to purchase this perfume. This was no mere tip. It wasn't a gratuity. The type of perfume that was used in ancient Rome was this nard. And it was, it was used for anointing the head. And it was imported from India at a high premium, as you can see. It was surely, without a doubt, it was Mary's prized possession. The Bible tells us in, other, in the other Gospels that it was kept in an alabaster container that w- you could only access the contents inside by breaking the container. You couldn't just unscrew the lid and then take a little bit out and put it back on. Once you opened it, it was open. And it was usually used often for, for embalming because of the, the, the expense and things like that. And, and consider, and when you think about all that, consider how much of this priceless possession she lavished on Christ. The Bible says she took a pound of this stuff. It probably translates to about a half liter. Now think about that, ladies. How much perfume is a half liter? Think about that. I mean, I don't buy perfume. I assure you. But I know that you get little bitty containers and they can cost hundreds of dollars, right? And so she has this massive container, a half liter, and she, and she lavishes it all on Christ. The other gospels say that she anointed his head. John says she anointed his feet, which means that there was plenty. There was more than enough for just his feet. And it tells us that the house was filled with the fragrance, the scent of this perfume. It must have lingered for days on Christ's person and on his clothes. I imagine that those those uh, soldiers who gambled for his clothing still could pick up the scent of that fragrance coming from his clothing. Though a first century Jewish woman out of modesty, would never have been seen in public with her hair unbound. Mary drops it. She just loosens it, lets her hair fall as as an act of humility. And with her hair, she wiped her Savior's feet. Now think about this, folks. Foot cleaning was reserved for the lowest of the lowest slaves. And even those lowest slaves wiped the feet of their masters with a towel, not Mary. She realized her place in relation to Jesus and she took her very hair and wiped his feet. That is a powerful image of her humility, of her worship. Her hair, think about this, took on the scent of Christ. And and every 
day that for however long after she smelled that, it would remind her of her adoring, reverent encounter with her Lord. See, Mary wasn't happy just to sit and soak Jesus in like Lazarus. She wouldn't rush around doing and doing for him like Martha. The love put in her heart by being with him burst forth in giving and sacrifice and honor and love and in worship of him. That's what happens. Now, I would love to say, amen, pronounce a benediction. This story takes a big turn here. And when the saints are gathered, it seems like there's always one among us. And in this case, Judas Iscariot, one of the most notorious villains in Scripture, was the one. What do I mean by that? Let's read what the Bible says. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas wasn't serving like Martha or enjoying Jesus like Lazarus. He certainly wasn't worshiping like Mary. He was accounting. He had his calculator out watching this whole display. He was being the voice of practicality and reason. He didn't see an act of extravagant love. He saw waste. And more, as a thief, he saw a missed opportunity. Let me tell you something about worship. True, genuine worship is rarely practical. True, genuine worship is often unreasonable, and it can even be a little messy when it's legitimate. See, why do I say that? Because worship always require that something the world values is sacrificed. It could be our rights, it could be our agenda, it could be our reputations, it could even be our stuff. And when they watch this sacrifice, when the world is viewing this, it will not make any sense to them whatsoever. Why this waste? Think about what could have been done. See, the world steals things for its benefit that you and I will turn around and freely give to Jesus. What was the problem here? See, this is it. This is the basis of it. Judas foolishly thought that that perfume was worth more than the one it was lavished upon. That was the problem. He had his economics way, way wrong. See, within a week... Judas would sell Jesus out and betray him for 30 pieces of silver, far less than what Mary had just done. And in that act, he would show how little he truly valued Christ. Mary is almost saying, this year's wages is not enough for my Lord. And and, uh, Judas turns right around and says, that's way too much for the Lord. See, there's always going to be people who criticize every act of true worship as too impractical, every gift as too exorbitant, every act of mercy as too radical. But Jesus never blushed at Mary's costly gift because he alone in the room recognized it for what it was. He looks at Judas and he says, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. See, Mary was fulfilling prophecy by readying Christ for his journey to the grave. Jesus rebukes Judas's self-interest, and he does not praise him for his cheap religiosity. The other Gospels record Jesus declaring that what Mary had done would be remembered forever, proclaimed forever, wherever the gospel is preached. And do you realize that by you and I talking about this this morning, that what Jesus said, his prediction is being fulfilled right here in our midst? Moving on. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So we've seen the one who served, the one who soaked, the one who worshiped, the one who schemed. And now our text highlights those who spectated, those who just came for the show. Now, let's be fair. We talked about this earlier. Who wouldn't want to see a man who just days before had been dead and now was sitting and talking and eating? I would go see that. Wouldn't you? Of course you would. There wasn't any sin in their curiosity. But here's what I want you to notice about these guys. They're called, miracles are called signs for a reason. Because the miracle, the sign is pointing to someone greater than the miracle itself. See, today, many people like to peer through the windows of belief as spectators. They, they call themselves Christians and, and they associate with the encouragement, the morality, the fellowship, and the miracles that go with all that. But following Christ means and costs so much more. See, following Christ really genuinely costs obedience. It demands sacrifice and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He has to rule. Let me tell you something different about Jesus than our culture. Jesus is not looking for Facebook friends. Jesus is not looking for Twitter followers. He could care less about those things. What Jesus is demanding is is disciples with skin in the game, willing to even die if necessary. Jesus said to Somebody who wanted to compromise his call one time in Luke 9, he said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you're all in or you're not in at all. Many who identify as religious, as believers, or even Christians will one day find that they had no idea what following Christ truly requires. And because of that, They will have forfeited eternal life in their blindness to what the Gospels tell us that following Jesus really means. So here we go again. Moving on. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Isn't that stunning? Because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So at this point, we've seen the servant, the soaker, the worshiper, the schemer, and the spectators. But the Jews represent those who were seething with jealousy. Lazarus gets a bullseye on his back just because Jesus raised him from the dead. Thanks, Jesus. But the Jews were not about to tolerate anything that pointed 
to Jesus's glory. Think about it. In John chapter 5, they got bent out of shape because he healed a man on the Sabbath and claimed to be God's son. In John chapter 9, they literally kick a man out of the synagogue because Jesus healed him. And that man had the audacity to recognize that Jesus was working by God's power and speaking his words. Now they want to kill a guy. Just because Jesus raised him from the dead, proving that he has power over death. Now here's what the absurdity that occurred to me. Shouldn't they be afraid that if they succeed that Jesus is just going to resurrect him again? That makes sense to me. It seems like to kill a man who the Lord of life has resurrected is a plan that is destined to fail. That's what jealousy does. We can't rejoice with others because we perceive only the loss of personal influence or acclaim. Everything is measured by how it's going to make us look or how it's going to make us sound or how it's going to make us feel. And we're locked into many false beliefs because our jealous pride will not let us admit that we are wrong. The Bible tells us that the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. How did Jesus, we've seen everybody else's reaction. How did Jesus react to all this busy service from Martha, this grateful soaking from Lazarus, this humble worship from Mary, this wicked scheming from Judas, this empty spectating from the crowd and the seething jealousy from the Jews? Well, the first thing he did was he displayed his glory The crowds surrounded him as he came into the city and they shouted, Lord, please save or the Lord saves. The word was Hosanna and that's what it meant. And they waved palm branches, these national symbols of the nation of Israel. And because they were waving these symbols, they looked and they said, you are the king of Israel. And they said, This man, this Jesus is coming in the name or with the authority of the Lord. And Jesus looking at this, the scene, he never once said, hey guys, knock it off. I'm not worthy of that. No. He never stopped them. He didn't tell them that they were wrong. Why? Because his glory was on display. But that wasn't all. Jesus So in reaction to all this, he kept his focus. Jesus was never once dissuaded from the cross by the adulation of the people. You know, if you and I were riding into town and people were calling us the king and telling us that we were marching in God's authority, you might think, well, I could get used to this. Not Jesus. He was focused. The Bible says it like this in the old King James. He said he had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. What that means is nothing could could distract him or dissuade him from what he was going to do. He knew what he had come to do. 
And though those holy ears heard Hosanna on Palm Sunday, he knew that those ears, same ears, would hear crucify him on Good Friday. He was not distracted at all from moving towards the cross and towards humankind's atonement. But he not only displayed his glory and kept his focus, he also humbly submitted Though logic, knowing who Christ was, especially on this side of history, logic would dictate that he come into Jerusalem mounted on a white stallion, leading his enemies in triumph. His, his crown would have to wait. Why? Because he humbly submitted. He was sitting on just a humble donkey, a, a common animal, riding through a fickle crowd towards his own death. Can you just pause a moment and imagine what that scene must have been like on that first Palm Sunday? And as your mind imagines Christ riding into Jerusalem to complete his mission by taking your punishment, the question now is not how did Christ respond? The question is put to you, how do you respond to him? Think about everybody else we saw this morning. Are you going to be the one that is going to try to serve your way into your Savior's favor? No, man. Jesus is going to look at you and say, you are troubled and anxious about many things. Choose the better part. Are you going to try to ignore the world around you and just enjoy the Christian party? Maybe hoping that some other Christian will be impressed with how much you know or how holy you are? Are you going to use Jesus and His church to advance your own agenda loaded down with self-interest? Or will you just be happy to stand on the outskirts and only be an admiring spectator of the one who calls you to really, in actuality, truly follow Him? Will you let petty jealousy prevail as Christ's call demands that you give up all of your influence, all of your respect, all of your position? And will you plot to silence Him by persisting in your sin, in your rebellion, in your selfishness, in your idolatry? Or will you, like Mary so long ago, Bow down before the Lord. Will you break open your life? The only one you got. The most valuable, precious possession you have. Will you bust it open? In full sacrifice. And waste it all in worship of the one who has spared nothing to make you his own. How will you respond to Jesus Today, He is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Break open your life. And all its contents, all your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your relationships, your love, your habits, your everything, let it all just be poured out on Him. And let the fragrance of a life spent on Jesus fill the place let it 
get all over you and the, the, the scent, that fragrance of that sacrifice follow you wherever you go. So the world can look at you and they can say, man, Jesus must be worth a lot. He must be worth a lot. Because look, look at what his followers have given up just to be near him. Let's pray. If you would stand with me. Lord, humility and honesty both work together to dictate that I tell you that every response, every single one without exception that I read in your text this morning of how people responded to you, Lord, I've been guilty. I've been guilty of just running around like a crazy chicken with my head cut off trying to serve you, thinking I was gaining something by it. Lord, I have just hidden away in my Christian cave and tried to be smarter and more holy and more spiritual, ignoring those around me. Lord, I have been selfish and and scheming. Lord, I've just wanted to be the guy just spectating, having some association with you, but one that costed me nothing, Lord. God, I've seethed with jealousy sometimes at the things that you were asking me to sacrifice in order to glorify you. So, Lord, I, I just want to confess that before my brothers and sisters today and pray that your Holy Spirit would work in them to confess the same things. And Lord, I pray that you would just come and by the sovereign power of your Spirit, just make us forsake all of that stupidity, all of that foolishness. And God, to be this morning filled with a heart like Mary's, Lord, to take that which is most precious to us off the shelf, to come to where you are and just break it wide open. Give it all to you, holding nothing back. Not trying to conserve or reserve anything that is spilled on you, Lord. Just, just letting it all go, pouring it all out. And God, letting our lives just... Let the scent of our lives just be sanctified by your person, Lord. And we ask you to do this, Lord. We ask you that you would just, God, let this message, whatever was of you in it, Lord, let it bore deep in us, Lord, and help us to live in that kind of worship this week. God, to give you everything, to hold nothing back, to be transformed such a holy sacrifice into your image and being set to give you glory. We We ask all of this in your precious holy name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position and I just want to speak a benediction, an appropriate benediction over you this morning from the scriptures, Colossians chapter 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for being here.